Hello, listener or viewer, depending on if you are listening to this in an audio format or consuming it in a visual format. Today's episode is very special. It's just me here on the mic today. That's right, a solo episode, the first in the history of the Cody Trout pod. And I'd like to kick it off a little different. I want you to focus in on the sound of my voice. Listen to this microphone as I hold it up next to this chalkboard and run my nails down it. I just love the sound of some good nails on the chalkboard in the morning. I mean, who doesn't, right? No better way to kick off this solo episode. So, Mikey, roll the intro music. I'm Cody Troutman, and this is my podcast. The Cody Trout Pod. Mmm, Cody Trout Pod. Yeah. Man, that goes hard. A big thank you to my friend, Dale. He's the one who helped me custom craft that little intro track. And if you are consuming this in a visual format, you might have noticed something very special. There was an intro video this time. No longer do we just have the podcast graphic. No, no, my friends. We have upgraded. We are moving on up to the east side of the podcast charts because there was an intro video that time. So now we have a beautifully produced professional intro track by my good friend Dale Jefferson and a beautifully made and crafted intro video by my good friend Jack Dyer. Like many elements of this podcast, what we've built so far would not be possible without the help of very good and very talented friends. So Dale, Jack, thank you. And if you got to see that new intro track via the video format of this podcast, let me know what you think. Because, truth be told, we work pretty hard on it, and I really love it. Really love how it turned out. Now for the episode. As you can see on my sweatshirt here, and if you can't see, I'll read it aloud to you. My sweatshirt, and I'm not bullshitting, this is real. It says, small dick, big dreams. I don't think any set of four words with a comma right in between the middle of them would describe my attitude and this podcast better. I am a man equipped with, or should I say, not equipped with, uh, what would be described as an illustrious meat scepter, if you will. But what I lack in the engorgement department, I make up for in the dream department. I have big dreams for this podcast, and I have big dreams for this episode. As it's the first solo episode, I'll be the one talking the whole time. There won't be the courteous laugh track for my friends to back up any average jokes I make. There won't be anybody else to fill any awkward silences that are created by the black holes within my own psyche. And I think that is a good thing. We're going to dive deep into some of my own observations and musings of this past week. And I want to start with a particular observation. And I don't, it's not just any observation. I think there should be a name for these types of things. And I think it should have a a real ring to it, a real catch to it. So I want to call it Troutman's Takes. I spent a good bit of time thinking of that. I wanted it to be short, punchy, and an alliteration of sorts. So Troutman's Takes is what we've got. The first Troutman take, and I got this because I recently got my COVID booster, and I just got to thinking about COVID, the vaccine, and everything like that. And we're not going to get political. This is simply a comedic musing for you to digest and percolate on. The COVID vaccine is like the mafia. Think on that for a minute. Do you know how it's like the mafia? If you're not mentally making the leap with me, I'll lay it out for you. Back when the mafia was running shit, you know, back in like 2008, you had to pay the mafia for protection from the mafia. So if you didn't pay the mafia protection, the mafia would come and it would kill you. Right? That's kind of backwards. Think about this. The COVID vaccine is much the same way. When I got my vaccine, I don't know about any of you out there, I got super sick. After I got the vaccine, after I got the booster, I got sick as shit. Like, I was on my ass. So I've had uh, the vaccine and the booster. I got sick as shit both times. I'm 0-2 against uh, COVID as 
you know, people like to describe, like, we're going to fight this coat, like, literally fighting it. No, I'm getting my ass kicked. We shouldn't try to fight it. It's going to beat your ass. But COVID, you get the vaccine and you get sick, right? Bear with me. You get the vaccine so you also don't get sick. So you get the vaccine and get sick so that you don't get sick, right? It's like a, saying it out loud, it, it doesn't sound as as insightful. But when I thought of it, wow, I was really captivated by my own internal musings there. I was like, oh my God, the COVID vaccine's like the mafia. Because if you don't pay the mafia for protection from the mafia, the mafia's going to kick your ass. And if you don't take the COVID vaccine for protection from COVID, COVID's going to kick your ass. Um. Yeah, and then because you, when you get the COVID vaccine, you get sick anyway. It's like you're paying the mafia for protection from the mafia because they'll steal your money. I'm going to leave it there. I, I think if, if it's not sinking in by now, and the more I explain it, the, the less of a great analogy it seems like. So we're going to move on. As you can see or hear, a little AM, ASMR segment. That's the sound of paper crinkling. Do you have ASMR tingles yet? <laughs> if you don't have tingles, that's fine. This isn't an ASMR podcast, but I came up with a really good and precise plan for today's podcast. This won't be your typical meandering podcast. No, we're going to cut through these jokes with scythe-like precision. I have some things I want to cover today. Not only do I want to share a couple of more interesting observations for you and attempt to make you laugh in a couple of ways, uh, a couple of hilarious stories that I think everybody can relate to. And then we're going to wrap it up with the serious topic of the week, as we do every week here on the Cody Trout Pod. That's me recreating the intro music. And this week's serious topic is going to be the fact that doing difficult things, or things that are hard or challenging, is good for you. And not only is it good for you, I think it is essential to feeling fulfilled in life. We'll get to that in a little bit. Chew on that for a while. I do want to share a little tasty tidbit from an experience I had earlier this week. I was, if any of you listening are Oklahoma City residents, I'll actually describe the location to you. It is uh, in Oklahoma City. If you're driving south on Broadway, the street like in Oklahoma City, I think it's like around 4th Street or something, there is an art installation, and it is a a ring of sorts. It is in the shape of a circle, and it has letters all over it. And the letters are O, K, and C. And they are repeated many a time at many different angles and many different, you know, fonts and things around this, uh, you know, giant stone circle. And uh, the problem with that is that um, O, K, and C if arranged in just a slightly different variation, um, that spells cock. So if you think about it, if you have OKC right next to another OKC, I'm just going to say that at a slightly different cadence. Instead of OKC, OKC, imagine you read it as this, OKCOCK. That spells cock. And the letters OKC are all over this thing in such a way that the human brain, as we've trained ourselves to read words constantly, we're not looking for little cute abbreviations. We're looking for words that we can, you know, different syntactical arrangements that we can digest, turn into information, and act upon that information. This circle of stone, if you will, basically just has the word cock written all over it. And... It is in the shape of a circle, a ring, if you will. And so my friends and I have affectionately come to refer to this as the OKC cock ring. And it is about 10 feet in diameter. And I'm comfortable saying this, comfortable taking this bet. I would, I'll, I'm actually, actually going to call the Guinness Book of World Records to see how they feel about this. I would say that it is the biggest cock ring in the world. Yeah. Let that sink in. Here in Oklahoma City... We have the biggest cock ring in the world. So now when I'm out in different parts of the country and people ask me to describe Oklahoma, I'm going to say, you know what? The people are nice. The cost of living is really good. There's more to do than you would think. And a bonus, we have the world's biggest cock ring. I don't think it gets much better than that. 
And it gives all the little kids, little little boys and girls, we're mostly boys, something to aspire to. You know, they look down at their, you know, little childhood penis and they think, hey, someday maybe I'll fit that cock ring. You know, it's the Oklahoma dream. You know, some people dream of becoming president or being an astronaut or professional athlete. No, uh, in Oklahoma growing up, our boys just want to fit into the OKC cock ring. And I think that's a far more noble and a far more universally applicable goal. You know, sometimes I actually wonder how this installation got approved. Because if you think, like, having the word cock all over this thing, everybody that I've told, I've driven by this with numerous people, everybody that I drive, that I drive by this with, they see the word cock. There, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen a single person go, oh, okay, see, that's cool. They're like, whoa, why does that thing say cock all over it? I don't know, but I like to imagine what it was like. Um, like the pitch meeting for it, signing the artist, the unveiling of it, you know, like... Um, they have this, you know, cool thing. It's like, oh, like a circle represents unity. And OKC, we're all about unity. So what if we just put like the letters OKC like all around this big circle and make it of stone, you know, because that's like, you know, really permanent. And that means that, you know, we're going to we're going to be here for a long time and forever unified. Yeah. Find me an artist. Find me an artist. That's what the city council meeting was like. I wasn't there, but I'm imagining it was something like that, if not more overzealous and boisterous. You know, so they find this artist and they pitch him the idea and uh, or her the idea. Ooh, I got to be careful about that. That's uh, what is that like subtle ingrained sexism? I'm just using the like the pronouns him for everything. My girlfriend's really been helping me with that. She's uh, very aware of like gender stereotypes and different um, ways that they creep up into culture. And so she's really been helping me like, you know, become aware of like my inherent biases within you know, different pronoun usage and assumptions. So, you know, they find this artist and they tell them their idea and the artist is like, okay, so just the letters OKC all around this big ring. So they start making it and they're like, holy shit, this thing says cock. And because they're an artist, they're a little bit of an anarchist. They're like, you know what? I'm going to go for it. I'm going to make the biggest cock ring in the world. Fast forward however long it took them. The big unveiling happens. Everybody's like, <gasps> but... Oklahoma, a little bit of a southern state, a little bit of uh, prejudice from an era gone by. Everybody's looking at it like, holy shit, does that say cock? Does it, that says cock on it. What the fuck? But nobody could admit this because they're looking around. I know our city council, um, most of them are men. So looking around, you know, man to man going, you know, who's going to say it? Who's going to say it? Nobody wants to be the first to admit that their brain sees cock, you know, because it's like, you see cock, you're gay. So instead of just admitting like, okay, come on, guys, this says cock. That's a giant cock ring. We got to redo it. They're like, shit, I can't be the one to admit it. I can't be the one to admit it. I don't want to see cock. I, I don't see cock. I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't even know of the word cock. I don't taste cock. I never taste cock. I, I, like last Saturday, I definitely wasn't tasting cock, you know. So these guys got a lot to hide, and they're not going to be admitting that this is something they see. So instead, they say nothing and leave it. And now all the citizens of Oklahoma get to enjoy the biggest cock ring in the world. And I think we're better for it. I'm I'm really glad that that exists, and I love that nobody yet has looked at it and seen the letters OKC. They just see cock. You know, right now we're right in the thick of winter, and it finally got cold. It stayed like sunny in 75 in December, like Christmas was like wakeboarding weather, basically, but it finally got cold, and I've seen a lot of this type of person. It's the type of person that no matter how cold it is, they're going to wear shorts and a t-shirt and they are going to promise you that they are not cold. And they're going to shame your manhood and take away any macho points that you have because you admit that you're cold. Uh, I have known a lot of uh, this type, especially in, in college. Uh, I was on the golf team and we'd practice out in the cold a lot. And there'd be a lot of guys that would show up to practice, you know, when it was 45 degrees and windy in shorts and a t-shirt and assure you that uh, they weren't cold. Uh, you were just a bitch. So, you know, I see guys like that. And I always, I always thought that was like a really strange hill to die on, to like stake your manhood on, you know. Not the fact that maybe you're like a laborer and you build shit with your hands. Like if we're just thinking of like, you know, the real stereotypes of what is like macho and manly, you know, no, I don't build shit. I'm not like big and strong. I don't like protect those that are less fortunate or, you know, provide. No, I wear shorts in the winter. Boom. 
I just think that's a very odd hill to die on. And my experience with it is that these people who are dying on this hill as like their macho ness is predicated on the fact that they just like say they don't get cold. I think it's because they lack any other sort of trait that could be attributed to like macho ness. You know, it's not any guy that's like big, strong, can build shit, provides, has like upward mobility or motivation to like achieve things in life. They don't like, not a lot going for them, you know? And so I'm sure that, that at some point it's just like, they're looking in the mirror like, damn it, Kyle, you know? Uh, no, Kyle's, this, the Kyle stereotype is like the monster energy drinker, which is a, a Travis. <laughs> yeah, Travis, that sounds like a real good country boy name. They're looking in the mirror like, damn it, Travis, you're a fat, lazy piece of shit. You provide nothing for nobody. <laughs> you done lost your man card a long time ago, but God damn it, at least you don't get cold in the winter like some of them silly nannies, them cotton-headed ninny muggins. <sighs> That's just my theory, though. But I think that's just me doing a little bit of a hard cope because I get cold if it's like 71 degrees. And so I'm always bent. like, I think in this room, it's 72 degrees. I have boots, pants, a sweatshirt and a long sleeve shirt on. So I think that's just me doing a little bit of a hard cope. And I'm jealous of that type of man per se, because I don't provide uh, any of those macho characteristics either. And I sure as fuck get cold. So I think that's really me dealing with my own uh, insecurities of my own macho nature. Ooh, a little bit of internal contemplation going on here. That's always healthy. Self-awareness is always a good thing. It's interesting because everybody knows they should be self-aware, and almost no one is. And even me saying that is probably ironic in some way because of some amount of self-awareness that I lack that doesn't realize how ironic that statement is. And so that can become like a big paradox where we just go around and around in circles. And I debate with myself alone in this room the lack of self-awareness I have. Like, I'm sure there's some sort of lesson to be learned from me setting up cameras, a set, microphone, lights, recording equipment, and listening to myself talk. I'm sure there's some, like, deeper lesson to to be learned there about self-awareness, lack thereof, and uh, self-analysis that I'm missing. But because I'm missing it, I gain no deeper knowledge of my own situation. And I just think about men who wear shorts and say they're not cold when I am. And I'm jealous of them because in the winter, their wardrobe is unlimited and mine is restricted to warm clothing only. Speaking of wintertime, uh, my sister was in town. She lives in Washington, D.C. She She's like a big congresswoman now, uh, really carrying the family torch. Um, it's kind of a race to see can she carry it far enough with her legitimate career before I put it out with my illegitimate pursuits of YouTube, podcast, stand-up comedy. So... That'll be a fun battle. Uh, I think as committed as she is to taking this family someplace respectable, I am equally as committed as running it into the ground. So it's kind of like the immovable object versus the unstoppable force. Like, what will yield first? So I'm really excited to find out. I, <laughs> fingers crossed I win. You know, <laughs> it would be, that would be an epic downfall of the Troutman legacy. But speaking of my sister, um, her friend was, uh, he, he's a DJ, and he was like performing a set, headlining, I'm, I'm not quite sure the terminology, um, disc jockeying, jockeying his own disc, if you will, at a club around Christmas time, and so we went to show our support, uh, and he was actually quite good, so shout out, you know, Winston, I enjoyed your set, well done, good job, Winston and Ricky, uh, DJ Drown is their, is their group name, I thought that's pretty cool, DJ Drown, I'm sure there's some deeper meaning there I'm missing, but good for them, they're doing their thing. And anyway, at this club, there was an elderly gentleman that was dressed as Santa Claus. And I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. You know, here, it, like, it's, I think it was like midnight on Christmas Eve or something. And this guy dressed as Santa Claus, well, for one, uh, how's he going to deliver all these presents if he's out clubbing and drinking and dancing? I don't know. But... You know, it seems a little far-fetched anyway that he'd deliver all the presents in one night. So the fact that he's able to do that and able to take a break to go clubbing, you know, more power to him. Um, I know you're not supposed to drink and drive. Can you slay and drive? Well, I guess he's not really driving. Cause Rudolph, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? <laughs> Duh. He's along for the ride. He's more in charge of, like, logistics, like delivering presents to the right addresses. Rudolph gets him there. So I guess it doesn't matter if he's a little tipsy. 
Maybe that's why he makes it through the night. You know, stays calm, has a drink or two. Rudolph guides the way. Dancer and Prancer kind of like set the tone pace-wise. Like, hey, we got to hit this many houses. And, you know, Santa's more in charge of just like climbing down chimneys, eating cookies, drinking milk. But this particular Santa, I don't know if he was the real deal or an imposter. You know, there's only one real guy and all the imposters look like him. So it's pretty hard to differentiate. I wonder if I've ever met the real Santa Claus and just not known it. Man, so many unanswered questions in this life. But this individual in particular, he was at the club with a Santa outfit on. And I thought that was really cool. It's like, look at this old man, you know, not living by the stereotype of, you know, popping his dentures out and going to bed at 6 p.m. watching Wheel of Fortune. No, he is here in a Santa suit getting at the club with us young folk. Like, respect, Pops, respect, you know. But it turned out that um, his his intentions were nefarious, as I quickly found out, because he had a camera with him. And he would approach every young lady, especially the more scantily clad ones at this club, and he would tell them, hey, let's take a picture. And they would be like, okay. And he'd herd them over to this chair and tell them to sit on his lap, and he would take a little picture with them, and they got to keep the picture. So it was kind of like mall Santa gets horny, if you will, because... He was dressed as Santa, and he wanted people to sit on his lap for a picture, but he wanted, you know, you know, girls with fat asses and big tits to sit on his lap and, like, grind on him and, like, maybe ride the sleigh home with him. He wasn't trying to, like, fulfill childhood dreams. He was trying to fulfill his own fantasies, if you know what I'm saying. So, not my favorite Santa I've ever met, and I think it was, like, it got to the it got to a point where it wasn't like first it was like adorable like oh there's Santa then it was just hilarious like oh my gosh this dude's in here, clawed up Saint Nicked out with a camera you know just to like try to mack on some chicks but then it got like a little weird because he was like trying to talk to my sister and she's like no I'll pass you know I'm not trying to feel like <laughs> Santa's chimney come up if you know what I'm saying Santa goes down the chimney you know and. Uh, he was, like, not taking no for an answer. got a little weird. We had to tell him to, like, buzz off, you know, go tend to his reindeer, you know, play with his own antlers, whatever. But it just made me think, like, what is the... There's such a fine line between, like, adorable old man and creepy old man. You know, like, if he had come into the club... Uh, just think of it. It's not like the whole situation is weird. It's that a very... Like, you know, very specific actions are weird. And by the way, my, my sister's fine. He wasn't like that aggressive. He was just like a little weird. He was like, hey, come get a picture. So, you know, we told him, hey, buddy, you know, not tonight. Don't you have deliveries to make or something? Just think if he had done like a few key things differently, he could have had a great night and everybody there would have loved him. So he say he still shows up in the Santa outfit. He still shows up with the camera and he's still offering pictures to everybody. He can do that and still be adorable old man. He didn't have to cross into creepy old man because adorable old man He's doing the exact same thing, but instead of targeting women with revealing clothing, he's just hitting up everybody. He's just saying, listen, you know, I, I get it. I'm sticking out like I'm here to, you know, cause a scene in a good way. So let's all get some pictures. Let's all have a good time. He dances around. He takes pictures with everybody. Um, creepy old man is when he's just targeting the women that are scantily clad and, you know, trying to get him to sit on his lap. So, you know what? I think that's the differentiator. I think that it has nothing to do with the fact that he's like old and in a club. It has everything to do with the fact that he's specifically making it his own sexual thing. Ooh, let's think of some other scenarios. That might be the key differentiator that like makes anything creepy is like if he's, if they're bringing their own sexual energy to it. So like a creepy old man, like, like you think of a creepy old man just like walking up to, you know, people and like touching them and perving on them or like, you know, smelling a girl's hair or something like, or like a compliment, like an old, a creepy old man giving a woman a compliment. You can be an adorable old man and give a compliment. So let's, okay, we're going to play a game. Old man gives young woman a compliment. We're going to make it adorable and then we're going to make it creepy and we're going to see how fine that line is. So I'm going to think if I was an old man and I give a young girl a compliment, what would, like, how, what would come off as adorable? Like if, if I, like, if I'm not premeditating, if I'm just like off off the dome, if I said, hmm, hello, young lady, I love the pattern on your sweater. That is very festive. 
Good for you. You're you're a beautiful young woman. Have a great day. I think that comes off as adorable, old man. You know, I'm not a woman, so I can't exactly be the judge of if that's creepy or not. But if I observed that from an unbiased third-party point of view, I would say that that came off as adorable old man. So let's see how closely we can mimic that situation and turn it into creepy old man. Hello, young lady. You are beautiful. I love the way that that sweater fits you. You are a sight for sore eyes, my dear. You have a great day. You're a gorgeous young lady. Obviously, that's not the creepiest thing an old man could say. Like, in that situation, you could come up and be like, I love the pattern on that sweater. The only thing better would be the pattern of your skin on my lampshade after I kill you and cut it off of you. Like, that that would be kind of like the farthest thing. But I'm talking, how close can we get? You know, we're, we're trying to find the line. So I think with that second comment, you know, I kind of thought in mind of like, okay, if I was being creepy, like what would I say? So like the creepy old man versus the adorable old man. I think in the creepy version, it was more centered around like, you know, the fit of the sweater and like the old man, like really trying to convey like how pleasing you were to the eye. So I think it, I think it really all does go with intent because I wonder, Ooh, okay. Yeah. Let's think this through. So maybe you could even say the same thing with different intentions because it seemed like in the adorable version, I, when I'm just trying to like do it without thinking too hard about it, you know, I'm just trying to pay someone a compliment and they happen to be a young woman. In the creepy version, oh, I think we might be onto something here. In the creepy version, the central point was that I was only speaking because it was a young woman. Ooh, I think we're onto something here. So the adorable old man versus the creepy old man the differentiating factor, the line, if you will, is the line in the sand that is drawn is the object uh, or goal of the compliment and the purpose and intent behind it. So the adorable one, it was just that a compliment was, you know, the, uh, the old man was trying to give a compliment and it just happened that it was an attractive young woman. In the creepy version, the compliment was only created because it was an attractive young woman and they were just, you know, trying to trying to get fresh with them, trying to make like the Great Depression and, you know, make them dry. <laughs> uh, I made myself laugh. That was a good one. Trying to make like the Great Depression and dry them up. <laughs> that's really funny. But I think that, that is, that's, that's the key is like the intent of the comment. Like, I'm trying to think, like, uh, like I wonder if they could both say something about the fit of the sweater, and it could be adorable versus creepy. I just think that the adorable, if an old man was being adorable, he wouldn't say that sweater fits you well. He might say, that sweater looks great on you. You know, you have a great day. And I think that, you know, if you can see the look in his eyes and he's clearly being sincere and not trying to like start something and I also think it matters like what do they do immediately after they say it if that old man immediately then just walks away that's an adorable harmless comment it's the lingering I think that's what makes it weird I think you can get away with a lot with a compliment if you like if your intent is normal and you just get the fuck out of there after you pay the compliment because that shows like hey I had no ulterior motives I was just trying to like let you know this positive thought I had in your direction and get the fuck out of there. I think that's because, you know, I'm implying with the creepy old man version, like that sweater fits you good, you know, and he's lingering, he's looking at you. He's like, yeah, that sweater, it fits you good. I want, looking at you, I wonder what else would fit good. <laughs> like if an old man did that, I would say that's borderline creepy. <laughs> no, that's all the way creepy. But I think we've cracked the code. It's more about the intention. And is the intention just like, hey, I had a positive thought about this person and want to let them know because I want to spread a little positivity and a little good cheer? Or is it, ooh, there's an attractive younger woman and I want to enter her space and enter, you know, her world? I think that makes a huge difference. Um, and I think that comes across probably like subconsciously in the wording of how you would say it. And. Any woman that is listening, tell me, am I on the right track here? Am I kind of tapping in to just scratching the surface of the psychology of 
compliments paid from like an, an old man to a young woman and and what those could mean am i am i on to something here with like intent and behavior directly after the fact matters a lot in terms of whether it's adorable okay or creepy um or am i just mansplaining another complex issue and acting like i've cracked the code to something that is either already cracked or can't be cracked and somebody much smarter than me figured out. So let me know. Am I coming off as a pretty decent armchair psychologist or am I coming off as just another mansplainer that uh, doesn't deserve to have a microphone and a camera? <laughs> Ooh, that was an unexpected deep dive into the psychology of compliments and how old men can be creepy or not creepy. So, wow. Thanks for hanging with me. If you're <laughs> if you if you made it through there, thanks for coming out the other side with me. We're going to switch gears because I think that while I was out partying with Santa Claus on Christmas Eve, um my best friend actually recently had a baby. So, I doubt they were doing much besides taking care of their baby on Christmas Eve. And just observing from afar kind of his transformative experience having a baby, it really you know, I've I've been lucky enough to have some really good conversations with him lately about what that means and the life changes it has brought about. And like some interesting things stuck out to me that I want to share because I just some things that I think he said even offhandedly that he didn't know were so profound. He's a very profound guy, so it's not surprising that he's uh, spitting such intellectual wisdom on a whim. Uh, I'm very lucky to have uh, a friend like him because I, I consistently learn a lot and learn a lot more about myself each time we talk. But in these particular instances, I learn some about, uh, you know, his experience and what's going on in his life, which is really cool. He said one thing that struck me. He said that before his baby was born, he was worried about, like, just, like, the physical safety of the baby, like, in his arms. He, like, before it's born, he's thinking, like, oh, my gosh, like, what if... What if I trip? What if I drop my baby? What, you know, like, um, it, what if I, like, uh, am, I, I don't know. I think, I forgot how he phrased it. But, like, what if, what if harm comes to the baby while it's in my arms? Like, I would feel so guilty. He said the moment his baby was born and he held his baby, all of those fears evaporated because it was, like, an ancient, uh, like, animalistic instinct took over. And he knew that no matter what, whether he was in a war zone with gunfire, a volcano was erupting, an earthquake, a flood, or an iPhone charger cord that snagged his foot and tripped him. There was just no possible way that anything was going to harm his child while it was in his arms. He said it wouldn't even be like a cognizant thought his every cell in his body would protect this child. That it was just laughably inconceivable that any harm would befall his child while it was in his arms. And I thought that was so powerful and so interesting. Like, because I thought like before the baby came, he was like, it's such a valid concern. Like, Oh my gosh, like this, you know, babies are pretty fragile. You know, well, at least I think they are. I don't, I mean, I made it out. It must not have been too fragile, but (laughs) billions of us have made it past babyhood, but babies are pretty fat, fragile. And so it's like, oh my gosh, like what if I drop it? I'm like sitting here shaking. I don't even want to hold my own kid because I'm afraid I'm going to kill it. Uh, you know. But here he is. That it was like I thought it was so interesting how he said like this instinct and like animalistic protector nature took over, and he was like, no, it would be impossible that any harm would befall this baby while it's in my arms, and the safest place for this baby to be is in my arms or its mother's arms. And I thought that was so cool and so interesting. And so I was really thankful that that he shared that with me because it was it was very powerful and kind of gave me some insight into what it's like being a parent. Another thing he told me that was so interesting was that like you know when the baby's about to be born, he's talking like he can't wait to meet uh his daughter. It's a girl. He can't wait to meet his daughter. He was like so ready, you know, uh you know, he she'd been growing in the womb uh, cuz that's where babies grow for the past nine months, and, uh, or wait, no, they carried her, she was in the womb for 31 months, that's right, uh, yeah, no, because she, she was, um, due to the rent freeze, uh, during the COVID pandemic, she decided to just, like, re-up, and she got a deal, you know, 
Um, her rates never went up. So she just kind of chilled out. She had a good lease in the mom's tummy, didn't want to give it up. A good view of the city. But after 31 months, she was ready to move out and move into a bigger space. So, you know, when she <laughs> went off on a little tangent there, when she was born, you know, my friend was really excited to meet her and like, you know, get to experience this life with her. But he said that his wife already knew her. Like it was such an interesting dynamic because his wife is saying like, no, I already know our daughter. I know her personality. I know her quirks. I know like what makes her happy, what makes her sad. I know when she's tired, when she's hungry, when she's this, when she's that, like I, I are, this is a person I already know. I'm very close with. I already love and have a relationship with. And I thought that was the, another super interesting thing. Like that, you, like you hear moms talk about thing that sometimes, but like to hear, and, and like, I never would think too much of it, but to hear someone I'm so close with describing it to me, it was really interesting. Like, wow. Like I'm obviously like something's growing inside of you. It's a symbiotic uh, relation or well, not a symbiotic relationship, more of a parasitic relationship, to be honest, you know, that baby ain't doing shit for you and it's just taking all your nutrients. So it's a little bit of a parasite, but you know, what do you do for being a parasite? You don't punish it. You raise it for 18 years. So that's interesting, but that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a topic for another time. But this particular parasite, they already loved and cared for before it even arrived. And I, that's just uh it's very interesting about, about babies to me. And an, another thing, I know I'm trying not to get baby fever here for a kid that's not even my own, but this was another super interesting thing that I have heard moms say before, and I thought they were full of shit. And my, my best friend had also told me this, uh, that he thought they were full of shit too. Moms would say like, oh, you know what the different cries mean. Like, you know, this cry, you know, that's a hungry cry. And this cry, like that's an angry cry. And this cry, you know, that's a in pain cry. Obviously that's just my rendition of them. Uh, I was imitating my own cries cause I, you know, I have a, I have a cry for each emotion too. It's not just babies. It's exclu- not exclusive to them. I can cry if I want and my cries mean different shit too. Damn. No, but he told me that each, like each cry allegedly means a different thing. And like parents know whatever he thought they were full of shit. I did too. He said, no, it's absolutely true that with your own child, every cry and every sound they make, you you know what they mean. They don't have words. All they have is like, you know, grunts and squeals and cries, but you know exactly the emotion they're feeling and exactly what they're trying to communicate. And um, he said it's really, like, really interesting. And, like, sometimes it's funny. Like, you know, if they're trying to crawl and they're frustrated, like, that can be a little funny. But he said also, like, the in-pain cry, he said he feels like this, uh, like another one of those like ancient instinctual like this like rage and hurt like my baby is hurting you know um and this is I'm a pretty analytical logical guy myself and my best friend is like super analytical and logical and so you know to hear him talking through like some of his own emotional experiences with his child it's it's really you know for him to show those things with me it's really special and you know, I've never pictured myself really as a dad or a father or anything like that, but getting to see him and how it's changed his life, it's really interesting. So I can't wait to see how the baby goes. We'll be on baby watch. Troutman's baby watch. We'll monitor this thing up until it's uh, ready to go in a cocoon or lay eggs or whatever human babies do. I'm not I'm not quite sure. whether When it molts, do babies molt? I, I don't know, but we're going to keep tabs on it. We're going to use the scientific method, develop a hypothesis, test it, come up with a theory. I'm going to find out what the hell babies do. You know, thinking about um, my best friend, it reminds me of this. Uh, yeah, I, I remember I told him this the day after it happened. I was I was at a party in college, and <laughs> there was this individual, and to describe him, because that's important to the story, he was about oh, seven foot eight, 396 kilograms of raw muscle, Obviously, that's an exaggeration, but suffice to say, this dude was huge and not like in a fat way, in like a jacked way, and he was being like super aggressive and mean to everybody at the party, you know, just the type of, the exact type of person you want showing up at your house party, you know what I'm saying? It's like when he walks in, he's like, what's up, fuckers? Who's ready to party? You're like, who invited this guy? Because yes, that's who I want to party with. I'm being sarcastic, of course. This guy sucks, and the whole night, he was drinking like 
well, like he had never drank before and didn't understand the effects that alcohol can have on the human body. And even his even his friends who were like encouraging him at first, like, yeah, this guy, this guy's a fucking tank. They were like, uh, bro, you, you better chill. And he's like, bro, and I'll never forget this. He says, I'm built different. And he just he's just chugging mixed drinks, vodka, beers, whatever. I don't really know. I don't drink, so I don't I don't I don't really know. I just know he was drinking a lot. And he kept saying, like, no, bro, I'm built different. You don't get it. I'm built different. And, you know, if he was an asshole sober, he was straight up insufferable when he was drunk. Like, he even got to the point, like, he was harassing some of the girls. We're like, bro, can you fuck off? Like, yes, we know you can kick our ass. And, you know, hey, give me a good ass kicking. Everybody can use one of those now and then. But you got to be nice um, to the owner of the house. Respect the property. Don't harass the girls. You're already drinking all their shit. Just be kind. And his line was, I'm built different. Well, I went outside to take a call from a friend, and when I come back, he is leaned off the edge of the front porch, puking his guts out, and clearly having a terrible time of it. And, you know, I can't lie, I didn't feel the greatest amount of sympathy for the guy. You know, he'd been a real asshole, and I'm not exactly a saint, so I was like, <laughs> I was like, how you doing, big guy? And he's like, bro, get the fuck out of here, I'm fine. And I was like, hey, you need to get, you need me to get you a towel, you know, do I need to hold your hair? He had short hair, so obviously this was a joke on my part. I was throwing a little zinger, and he was like, get the fuck out of here. You know I'm built different. This shit don't phase me. There it was again, the built different. So he finishes his uh, little expulsion of liquids and half-dissolved solids, comes back in the house and proceeds to start drinking again. And he wasn't going to, but somebody started like talking shit like, hey, you ain't so tough now. And he's like, uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't understand. Like that was actually on purpose. I wanted to make room in my stomach for more fucking alcohol. And he starts drinking again. We're going to play a little guessing game. Do you think that went A, well, B, poorly, C, he's built different, or D, he was back to the front porch in 10 minutes? If you guessed D, you were correctamundo. He was leaned over the front porch, puking his guts out in about 10 minutes yet again. This time it was much more violent, and he was much less composed about it. So uh, I had gone from sarcastic snickering to genuine concern. I was like, listen, somebody needs to either take this guy home or put him to bed. Um, he's clearly not long for this world if he continues to try to swipe his man card. This, this is the type of guy that would wear shorts in the winter and say that he wasn't cold. It's this type of guy. You know who I'm talking about now. You're getting a clear picture. Suffice to say, he was done for the night. His friends were actually pretty apologetic for his behavior, so props to them. But I remember that I was in the back room, um, mostly because as the sober guy, a lot of people just kind of expect you to take care of the super drunk people. And it's just... How do I say this? That's just not my job. You know, I'm going to a party to hang out with my friends and, you know, am I the asshole for not wanting to take care of the drunk people just because I happen to be sober? If I am, hooray. But I was trying to avoid this situation, to be totally honest. And so by the time it's time for me and my buddy that I drove to leave, we're leaving. This dude is curled up on the couch. Uh, his clothes, which he covered in vomit, were gone. And he was dressed in uh, a bathrobe and curled up on the couch crying. Yeah, he was curled up on the couch, like, just kind of like... <laughs> passively sniffling with a bucket in front of him that was like half full with vomit. So clearly um, he had taken an L for the night. Uh, <laughs> despite the amount of times he'd worn shorts in the cold and insisted that he was fine, despite the amount of times he had insisted that his biochemistry and anatomy were simply different, uh, as in the phrase indicates, uh, I'm built different. He simply wasn't. He was built just the same as the rest of us, and he paid the price for his salacious drinking habits. And I cannot lie, I felt a, a tinge of, uh, of elation in seeing him in this condition. And I know, most, mostly I felt concerned. I was like, damn, like, bro is down for the count. But, like, <laughs> kind of funny. Uh, I know, I wish, I wish that I just felt, like, concern and empathy. Um, you know, I'm not exactly a Mother Teresa. I'm more like a brother Cody, I guess. But he was built just the same as the rest of us. So moral of the story is, don't be an asshole. Don't try to prove anything with your drinking. Otherwise, you'll end up barfing on a front porch in somebody else's bathrobe, crying on a couch alone at the end of the night. From that classic tale of college party gone wrong and 
hopefully a lesson learned by that young man who was in fact built the same. I think it's time for me to contemplate a, a lesson that I've learned or a lesson I think I've learned. I think oftentimes it's like I was talking about self-awareness earlier. It's easier to think that like something you learn in life is like more groundbreaking than it really is. Like you think like, holy shit, I figured this out. I got to share it with everybody I know because like I'm a super genius. I've cracked the code to, to life. Um, and in reality, it's just like a common observation that everybody has. So maybe this will be one of those. Um, but also it could be something that you find interesting. So here, here's what I will posit to you. And then I will back up my claims with data. Um, I think that doing things in your life that are difficult, doing things in your life that challenge you, that push you out of your comfort zone, even if they don't lead to anything, but simply doing them because they are difficult is not only a healthy thing, but essential to fulfillment and lends better perspective in life. And also grants you a sense of inner satisfaction that external validation cannot give you. And I think that's important as well. So those are some big statements. What do I mean by that? Let's take the most common example of what I've talked about, working out. Uh, And more specifically, weight training. I think that this is a very good example of doing something that is difficult because it's always going to be difficult to lift weights. Like each rep is designed to be difficult. That's kind of the point of it. Um, unless you're like a professional athlete, you're not really training for anything specific. You're just training to train and be healthy, which is kind of an abstract goal anyways. And you're doing something that's hard that you're not really seeing a, an immediate benefit from. You're just doing something that's hard because you know what's the right thing to do. You're building in this uh, discipline in your life. But yeah, that's like the most common example. So what are the like benefits beyond the obvious? Obviously, like your body will be healthier if you work out and, you know, you're going to live longer, function better, be healthier, whatever. Like, you know, there's all these studies that say like, oh, you have a better mood, better sex drive, your mind works better. What I'm talking about like the mental, emotional benefits. So when you do something that's hard, it at completion lends a sense of satisfaction in the immediate term. So like when you finish a hard workout, you feel good. Maybe not because of the workout specifically. You might feel like shit, but there is a sense of accomplishment that you can't attain if you don't do that difficult thing. Um, and then also when you stack those difficult things on top of each other, you know, working out once, you feel pretty good. Working out six days a week for a year when you look back on that, even at your lowest point when maybe things aren't going so good, if you look back and say, you know what, I did something that was hard and I did it consistently and I did it for myself, I think that lends a certain amount of uh, inner satisfaction that external can't give you. You know, the like another obvious example, like building something with your hands, like this table, like if I had built it with my hands, I mean, I bought it from Target, so... Uh, <laughs> that's why I don't have a lot of satisfaction in this table, but, uh, building something with your hands, you get that satisfaction. I would say that a good example of that in my life right now, because I, I feel like I'm not quite hitting. That's what something I'm not great at that I want to get better at is like having like this abstract thought and like hitting it home with examples. So I would say that this podcast is a good example of that. It's not like something I physically built with my hands. You know, I make it with my voice and on a computer and things like that. But I take a deep, deep sense of pride and satisfaction in this podcast. It's very important to me. Like there are elements I built, you know, like I, you know, hung the backgrounds and spray painted and, you know, moved the couches in here and, you know, set up the cameras and lights and set and all and, you know, wrote the talking points and research and all that. You know, like they're like... I guess I didn't make the list that long, but like, you know, there are things that go into it, but it's more the emotional journey of putting effort into something and seeing it come together that almost makes it worth more. And the fact that this podcast is hard and I'm not looking for sympathy and being like, you should subscribe and listen because I work so fucking hard. No, 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 not that at all. But I am saying that this is very hard to do. It takes a lot of work and a lot of effort and it makes me feel very good regardless of how many listeners I get. Like, yeah, of of course I want people to listen, but I think that what's so interesting to me has been that 
how satisfied I am with it, regardless of if anybody listens, regardless of if anybody really loves it or enjoys it. Obviously, that's the goal. I mentioned in episode one, my goal for this podcast is to, you know, I think like Jimmy Valvano said, a full day is when you laugh, think, and cry. I want this podcast to contribute to that. I hope it makes you laugh and I hope it makes you think. I don't know if we're going to be doing a lot of crying here. You'll have to take care of that on your own time, but I'm going to take care of the first two for you. So this is the thinking portion, (laughs) hopefully. You might be just thinking to yourself, man, this guy sucks, or he has no idea what he's talking about. This information is dumb. But hey, at least you're thinking. So I'm helping you out anyways. But this podcast, building it gives me a sense of satisfaction that you know, no viewer or listener could ever give me in that respect because whether there's a million people listening or six, you know, I still made it. I built it and I did it. And it was very, very hard. And that internal satisfaction that relies absolutely zero on external, I think is very important. And I think it's very important to find things that within our own lives that rely very little on the external and rely on internal, and rely on facing challenges and difficulties simply because they are challenging and difficult, and the pride, honor, and inner sense of satisfaction and boost in self-esteem you get from facing those things. Whether or not you pass with flying colors or stumble through battered and bloody, I think the self-esteem boost you get from doing something difficult and the inner satisfaction that cannot be taken away from facing difficulties. Even if nobody knows that you're doing hard things, that inner satisfaction you get is essential. So I would challenge anybody listening to, if there's a difficulty in your life, and I know this sounds like such motivational speaker bullshit, but if there's a difficulty you're facing in your life or a challenge that you're undergoing, be thankful for it and know that the fact that you are facing it at all you should be proud of and you should take honor in and take heart in and know that that is something that in this moment is hardening you, building discipline and willpower. And you can look back on in times of struggle and in times of bountifulness and relaxation and think that, you know what, I did do something very hard or I got through that, I can get through this. Or I think it adds another layer of, peace to times of leisure or rest when you think because sometimes if you're just doing nothing and it feels unearned that gives me a sense of anxiety but when I'm doing something restful or relaxing and I've done something difficult or hard or felt like I've really pushed myself in some way it feels satisfying it feels like my rest like I sleep better at night or if I you know my, my favorite thing to do is like watch a movie by myself like I love movies and watching them by myself when I watch a movie by myself after a day of hard work and maybe the day of hard work was simply that you know something that I thought would be easy turned out to be very difficult and I just had to hang in there and even I didn't even get it accomplished but I hung in there and I gave it my best and I can be satisfied in that and know that you know what I gave it my best today and I'm going to try again tomorrow and so I know that that is a little all over the place, and that is why I should refer to my notes more often. But to to sum up this point that I'm trying to make, that I hope I've done a decent job of making, is that when you do something difficult or hard, whether it is building towards a purpose or for no purpose at all, like maybe um, you meditate every day, or you go on a run, or you are nice to a coworker that's mean to you, or you uh, you know consistently nice to that coworker that's mean to you, or you decide to cook dinner every night for your family instead of eating out or getting takeaway, you know, whatever. And I'm sure these things have inherent benefits, but I'm just trying to think of things that are hard and take effort and may not be, you know, maybe nobody's thankful for them and they don't really build anything. I think those are good things to do as well because not only does it harden you and give you a sense of discipline, willpower, and achievement for when life does inevitably get hard. You can look back on this cachet of achievements and examples within your own life of times when you've weathered the storm and have confidence you can do it again. But it also lends a sense of perspective because I think it's like, you, you know, you can't recognize light without the darkness. You can't recognize sweet without the sour. You also can't recognize times of relaxation, peace, ba- peace uh, bountifulness, 
uh, rest without times of strife, uh, lean times, real times of struggle. And so I know the times in my life that when I appreciate and have the healthiest perspective on all the good things in my life are times when I'm acutely aware of how hard things are as well. And so that has kind of shaped this belief within myself that things being hard or difficult is essential. And I think that another key element of it is that it takes your self-esteem out of the hands of those around you and puts it inside yourself because it is essential that your self-image comes from within and not from outside of yourself. And when you are doing things that are hard and consistently proving to yourself that you are capable, that you are going to give it the attempt rather than walk away or that you're building something, especially if you're like building towards something, whether it's in your career or building in your personal life. Maybe you're building a great relationship foundation with a significant other. Be very proud of that. That's very hard to do. You should be very proud of that. I think that it gives a a deep sense of internal satisfaction knowing that you are doing things that are difficult and consistently facing those challenges that sometimes when uh, the opinions of others of you may be lower or you may perceive that others maybe don't like you as much or don't think you're as cool. It's You can look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what, I'm cool. I respect me. I admire me because I do things that are hard and I give it my best shot and I put one foot in front of the other and I choose to do things that are difficult, um, whether to make myself better, to make the world around me better, to elevate you know, my, or build something. And not only does that make me look at myself in a brighter light, but it makes the times when things are easy feel a lot better, really good. And the last thing that I think it does is it gives you a sense of not only appreciation, but a sense of earning things. Like when, this might be a terrible example, but I think that if you find $100 on the street or if like your parents give you 100 bucks, um, it feels different than $100 that's earned. You know, it feels uh, a little more trivial. Like when you earn something, it just, it feels different and you're more likely to take care of it. And I think that that sense of satisfaction you get from doing something that's hard, the perspective it lends you, the self-esteem it builds, and the emotional cachet that you earn from it and feeling like that you earned where you are in life uh, obviously a sense of entitlement is not good. And I think that goes a little too far in the other direction. But I'm talking about a healthy sense of earn and earning and feeling like you earned what you have, especially emotionally. You earned the self-confidence that you have. You've earned the respect for yourself that you carry. You've earned the love that you give yourself. I think that's very important because I think so often people talk about self-love and self-respect and you know, doing what's best for me, whatever. But if it's something that deep in your subconscious you feel is unearned, I don't think that it's ever going to be somewhere healthy. But if you feel that you have earned your own respect and earned your own love and earned your own self-confidence, I think that goes a very long way. You know, I really wanted to make a great point when I started that serious topic of the week. I don't know that I did. I think that I expressed my thoughts just okay uh, but I really, I really do want to do this serious topic of the week every week on the podcast and something like that, like a philosophical concept or like a little bit of an abstract discussion point. Um, and this is only episode four. They are very hard. It's much easier to just crack jokes and tell funny stories, but guess what? Doing things that are hard is good for you. And even though I don't feel that I portrayed all the points that I was trying to make, conveyed the anecdotes in as concise a way as I wanted to, and wrapped it all up in a nice little bow to present a point of view as great as I could have, I'm proud that I did it because it was hard to do. You know, I knew that I had this thought that I thought, you know, doing hard things is good for you. But it's like, why do I think that? What stories can I share that make that point? And how can I convey it to a listener in a sense, in a way that doesn't sound like I'm coming off as like preachy or teachy, but more sharing some experiences that I've had that have shaped opinions that I have that I think are interesting and might meet my goal of making somebody think a little bit. So as I do this more, I'll get better at it. And I'm just really proud that we've can't we've come this far. And if you're still listening to this point, I'm proud of us. So thank you for taking the journey with me. Thank you for listening to this episode this solo episode this has been really fun 
And I hope that this episode made you laugh, made you think, and maybe even made you cry. Until next time.